And please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to John, the third chapter. And we return this morning to our series on the Christian family. Yes, we usually do that in the afternoon. But with uh, a baptism of a covenant child before us, we consider this great need that all of our children have to be born again. That it is not just the outward sign of baptism that they need. What they need is a heart cleansed of their sin and a heart that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we look at this text and we think, oh, that is for those who are outside of the walls of the church. But this text is for all of us, that we all must be born again, even our littlest children. And so with that, I will, uh, we will focus on verse 7, but we will read from verses 1 through 21. And so give your attention once again to the reading of God's word. These are his words. Let us receive them with the authority that they carry. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which uh, that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. 
O holy God, your servant comes now to preach the holy word of God. And the one thing that we plead for is that the Holy Spirit may blow now among our assembly through the preaching of the word, that he would be pleased to work through this means he has ordained, that by the preaching of the word he may blow on all in attendance in this assembly, that all here would have saving faith and would cast themselves upon the Savior. We pray that especially for our covenant children and especially even the little one who will be baptized later on. We pray, Father, then, that your Spirit would be upon all that would hear the Word, and we pray, then, that your servant who preaches, that he himself would decrease, so that all that would be left before the people of God is the Word of God and Christ in the Word of God, that the Son of Man, the Son of God, would be lifted up among the assembly as though crucified among them, that they would look to Christ as the people of God of old looked unto that serpent and be saved from all their sin and iniquity. And so we pray this one thing, help thy servant preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was thinking on this, that the temptation in a series on the family, which is what we are in, this series on the Christian family, is to really focus on how to have well-behaved children. Now that's very important, but more important than that is to remember and never forget that our children need Christ. That our children need Christ more than good manners. That their sin cannot be papered over, brethren, by an outwardly good Uh, conduct. And, And to remember that there are many who grew up as pillars of society, even of our society, maybe even in churches like ours. You know, you think on this and what are some of the ideals for society, right? You want to raise young men that'll help little old women across the street, young ladies who will be kind and never backtalk to their fathers. And yet many of these are suffering in hell today. That's a solemn thing, friends. In fact, as I was thinking on this, there is a unique temptation that the devil places before covenant children. And it is the temptation of the Pharisee. The temptation that men like Nicodemus had, right? Because I am fairly moral and upstanding compared, especially, right, the contrast is getting more and more stark, right? We look and we look at the news and we look at people who are confused over gender and, and so on. And we, we can have this sense of the Pharisee, right, that I am fairly moral and upstanding. I'm not like those people around me. And so I am okay. I don't really need the Savior. And sometimes even as the church fights the culture war, and we'll talk about men like Doug Wilson, they can focus so much on the culture war that they can forget the basics of evangelical religion. Ye must be born again. It it, it does not profit a man to be outwardly religious, outwardly moral, to be better, so to speak, than all the sinners out there and yet not have a heart that is cleansed of their sin. And this is the unique temptation of the covenant child. One who grows up knowing the word of God, right? 
your parents' children are tempted similarly to think that little Johnny and little Susie never did drugs, they never partied, they never had premarital relationships, and they've been baptized, they've been catechized. All is well with them. No, all is not well with them, friends, if they are not born again which is what the Savior says very plainly in the seventh verse. Ye must, no exception, be born again. Non-negotiable, even for our covenant children. And so our theme with that before you is the need to evangelize our children, the need to evangelize our children. And we're going to divide our time into two heads. The first is the need of a new birth. After the sermon, a baby boy will be presented for baptism, and our danger would be to look on this child with all of his cuteness and say, oh, how innocent this little child is. Or or to think that because this child has entered a covenant home and will have the water of baptism will be presented for it, that the child's immortal soul is safe. No, friends, every newborn to the spiritual man or woman, right, sees a newborn as a living sermon to the Christian who knows the word of God. They see a newborn and say to themselves, he or she must be born again, right? That though this child is a blessing, it needs a new birth because their first birth simply condemns them. Hear what the Savior says in verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as you know, that double verily in the Greek language is a double amen. Amen, amen. It's emphatic, right? It is emphatic. I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what that means is the Savior is pressing on you. There is no way to squeeze out of this requirement. There will be absolutely no exceptions to it. And this is one of the weightiest discourses the Savior delivers and why he says, Amen, Amen, verily, verily. And what parents can often do is neglect to take the Savior's word to heart and apply it to their own children. Christian parents I'm speaking of. Your children, parents, all children, unless they are born again, will not have eternal life. Yes, we celebrate their first birth, right? Jesus says rejoice, John 16, 21, and our new mothers uh, keenly know this text. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come, but as soon as is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish. Why? For joy that a man is born into the world. We rejoice when a child is born because by God's help, a human being is born, right? An image bearer, one who bears the imprint Uh, though it is marred of God's own image. And their being, and we have to get this right in the culture of death, right? Their being is far more precious, far beyond every animal and every creature on the earth. A human child. However, that child is born a sinner with a rebellious heart towards God, right? One that will break all the commandments of God in thought, word, and in deed, 
One that will not so much as be, and this is where we have to get right, and this is the division between true religion and false, is not one that will so much be corrupted by the world out there, but one that is already born corrupted in the flesh, whose own flesh is corrupt. And this is the doctrine of original sin, expressed plainly in places like Psalm 51.5, which we often sing. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now you think on that, boys and girls, you know who sang that and who penned that. That was David, right? A covenant child who was born into the covenant of God, like the boy who is about to be baptized. And he saw, right, as he think on this, and this is him after he had come to terms with his heinous sin in murdering of Uriah, adultery with Bathsheba, right? Where did he see the root of his sin? the sin of murder and adultery, it was already present in his heart at conception. Right? Friends, every child after the fall, save Jesus Christ, is conceived as a sinner. And after the fall, right, all who are born in Adam, all that descend from him naturally, inherit his corruption. Ephesians uh, 2 verse 3, Paul says, we were, listen to this, by nature, the children of wrath. By nature, we are the children of wrath. In other words, we don't become the children of wrath. By nature, we are born the children of wrath. And as I have said, this doctrine is a fundamental distinction between true religion and false religion, and even Christian sects and those who will preach the true gospel. We are not born good people. We're not even born neutral people. We are born sinful and evil people. And how the pride of man hates to hear that we are born no good, right? That all our sins that we commit are the product of our sinful first birth flesh. Have you ever asked, you know, why is the world the way it is? Why is evil abounding? Why is there crime? Why is there hatred? Why is there murder? Why is there theft? Why is it it seems like no institution is run well? It's not because for some reason all these things get corrupted somehow. It is because men are born sinners. You adopt the thesis that men are fundamentally good and you will go insane trying to reconcile what you see in the world with that thought. Square men are good with what you see. Impossible. Impossible. Right? You know, every college student thinks, well, only only I ran the world right, then the world would be a better place. Well, I'm sorry, all those people who run the world were once in your shoes, my friend. It is the corruption of our own heart that is the problem, not the people out there. In verses 6 and 7, hear Jesus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You know, the Lord Jesus knows that we marvel at this doctrine, we are taken aback by it. We even despise it. We despise the fact that we are no good by birth. And we even can despise the idea that our children are no good, right? Uh, you ever try to tell a parent that their child has done wrong, right? You know most will bristle at you for it, right? We don't like to hear that we are no good and even that our children are no good by birth. But Jesus said, do not marvel at this doctrine. He says, what is born of flesh is flesh. Now, even if you are born again, then parents, right? 
Your child does not inherit regeneration. They will never inherit that from you. But what do they receive? They receive corruption in Adam, right? What is born of the flesh, the Lord Jesus says, is sinful flesh. And every parent must recognize this truth. That when little Johnny or Susie lies or hits or steals or talks back, the, the mistake would be at this point to say what they need is really better manners. And certainly there's a sense in which they do. And we'll deal with that in future sermons. But more than that, fundamentally what they need is to be born again. As verse 19 says, men love darkness rather than the light, even as infants. What you need What I need and what even the infant before us needs is signified by the words, ye must be born again. And that word must signifies necessity, right? It's non-negotiable. There is no other way by which men are saved, not child nor adult. And in the Greek language, as you might know, the word again is literally from above, born from above. You must be born from above, all of you. And I don't mean just the children. All of you, each and every one of you here. Your earthly birth, our first birth, only condemns us, right? So you might ask, what does being born again give us? Well, simply put, and this is not a sermon on the doctrine of being born again, but if you don't know, let me put this before you. It is to give you a new heart washed and purified of your sin by the blood of Jesus so that you have eternal life and that this new regenerated heart of yours uh, has faith in him. It loves him. It starts to hate sin and it loves to, it starts to love righteousness and it has put all of its trust and all of its hope in the beloved. It finds all of its standing in Christ and it takes none for itself in its own good works but casts itself entirely on him and it longs to follow him when he says, follow me. And so boys and girls, when you hear us speak of regeneration, this is what we mean, right? You think about what just the bare word regenerate means. It means to be reborn, right? So when we use that word, it's not just a technical word. It means to be reborn. We must be reborn as new creatures, No matter if you are zero days old or a hundred years old, even if you're old, the Lord Jesus Christ says, you must be born again. And this fundamental doctrine puts to death nominalism in religion and ceremonialism. It really does. You know, this doctrine is the lifeblood of true evangelical religion. And without it, all you will have the Bible says, is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. And when churches forget it, they die. And their children are lost. There are so many churches, right, in the American Northeast especially, and in Europe, that are essentially whitewashed tombs because at some point they forgot the doctrine, which is the furnace of evangelicalism, which is you must be born again. So where does this new birth come from? Verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and to give us a new spiritual birth. 
But lest we be confused with the baptism of a child uh, before us, what does Jesus mean regarding being born of water? Does this mean that when the child is baptized, he will be regenerated? No, not at all. That would be the Roman Catholic heresy that teaches baptism produces a regeneration in itself, and that is heretical. That would be, right, as we think on the tenor of this text, uh, that a minister has control over the Holy Spirit that blows where he will and says that when I put water on the child, then the Holy Spirit is bound and must regenerate this child. But in verse 8, the Spirit is sovereign. He blows where he will. And he is not bound by a man's so-called incantations when he puts water on someone. Now, what Jesus means is the work of the Holy Spirit is as water. It's tightly associated with this picture of water that cleanses. His cleansing work is pictured by water. The washing of water signifies purification and regeneration, which is the picture of the new heart. You know, when the Holy Spirit, this is the blessed thing, right? When the Holy Spirit regenerates us, what is he doing? He is applying the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us with the washing and cleansing away of all of our sin by the blood of the Savior when he gives us a new heart where he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And that is signified or pictured by the water of baptism. And it is not caused by the water of baptism, right? And that's why we have the water of baptism as a picture of what we hope and pray for for this child. Titus 3.5 is a vital text to understand what is signified by the washing of water. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, okay, not by our good works, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. See, do you see how uh, essentially what our Savior says, born of water, which is washing, and of the Spirit is reflected in Titus 3.5. Regeneration is seen as a washing. Being born again is seen as a washing to give us a clean heart and a renewing of our spirit, of our soul by the Holy Ghost. And so when you have your child baptized, parents, What it does is it doesn't say, okay, rest in the baptism, not at all. It should preach to you their need, their need for the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It will not confer the Holy Ghost to your child, nor does it itself wash him of or her of her sin. But in reality, it preaches, my child must be born of water and of the Spirit. He or she must have what this baptism signifies. And if they come to faith, right, we bless the Lord that what is promised in baptism, they actually receive through faith. And uh, I want to deal with a sort of in-house issue here in Presbyterianism at the moment. You know, the mistake that Presbyterian parents make when we say, rightly so, that a child of of even one believer, is born into the covenant, is to think that their child has a sure standing before God for salvation when we say that. And that's not the case at all. And all that kind of doctrine has produced is generations of nominal Christians who depart from the faith. It produces dead churches, and it does not produce spiritual children. But what is meant by being 
born into the covenant is no different really than what was meant by this in the Old Testament. It means that our children are born into the administration of the covenant of grace. And this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 7.14. When he speaks of the children of even a single believer, Paul says, Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Right? We bless the Lord that the children of believers are holy. They're presented for baptism because of that. But that holiness does not mean they're automatically regenerated and part of the invisible church. But instead they are holy in the sense that they are part of the visible church that they are part of the church of God. This is why Paul addresses children in the epistles. They are not the children of pagans. They have wonderful privileges like they enjoy today that pagans do not. They have the word of God before them, don't they? They get to hear of the word. They are prayed for. They are baptized. They hear the word preached. You must be born again, child. They are cared for in the covenant. They have elders that pray for them and treat them as Christian youth. They are part of the church under its discipline. They are part of the church, meaning that they are in the mother of Christians, the womb of the new birth, right? You can think of the church in this way. What is the ordinary means of salvation? It comes through the church. And so our children are birthed in their first birth into the womb of the new birth, right? But these advantages are moot unless they take to heart, my son, my daughter, you must be born again. And my goal today, parents, in this sermon is that you never be satisfied with nominal religion in your children. Never be satisfied that they, okay, they attend church. Okay, they go to catechism club or whatever. They uh, maybe have outward signs of, of uh, following the faith. You must be satisfied when they have a hatred of their sin. They have a heartfelt adoration and love for Jesus Christ that comes from a new birth. And they say, it is not by works that I have done, but entirely of the Lord Jesus Christ that I am saved. Until then, you cannot be satisfied with any of their outward forms of religion. Too many Christian parents are satisfied with unregenerated Pharisees for children. The one who has that form of godliness, but is yet denying the power thereof. You know, one who gets good grades and has a good job. One who attends church. One who knows their catechism backwards and forwards. One that does not fornicate before marriage. One who is, and this is a low bar, one who is straight. One who doesn't do drugs and so on. You cannot be happy with just that, friends. Because if they are not born again, if they don't hate their sin, if they don't love the Savior and trust Him in Him only for salvation, what was all of that worth in the end? Absolutely nothing. They are utterly lost. Consider Nicodemus himself, parents. Nicodemus was born into the covenant of grace, a covenant child given the sign of circumcision. Right, equal to baptism in those days. He even became a master or teacher of Israel. He really went as far as one can go religiously speaking, right? Yet Jesus asked him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Right? How is it that you, a teacher of Israel, don't know this simple doctrine you must be born again? Right? Nicodemus, 
He may have been satisfied like the Apostle Paul was before his conversion, saying something like this, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, as touching the law, a Pharisee, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, and so on. Right? And we ourselves can substitute baptism for circumcision in those words. And many of you might be satisfied with your children in these things. Johnny was baptized, right? Susie comes from a Christian lineage. They are a moral boy or they are a moral girl, unlike so much of their peers, unlike so much of their society. They keep the Sabbath day, right? They, they go to church. But if that is where their religion ends, friends, that is just a Pharisee. And we cannot be satisfied with that. They must be born again. And I'll just keep repeating that over and over again, because I pray and trust the Spirit will put something of the force of that in your heart. And Nicodemus marvels. Jesus asks, essentially, how is it possible you don't even know this? In other words, this is not a New Testament doctrine. It's all throughout the Bible. The Torah said it this way, Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. What is that? But get that new heart that comes with regeneration. Be born again. Nicodemus should have recalled texts like Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. That, that stony heart that is, that is the uh, inheritance of the first birth. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. That is the stuff, friends, of the new birth. It was right under Nicodemus's nose the whole time. And parents, you have to ask yourself, why did Nicodemus not grasp this basic vital truth? And lest you think that this is something wrong with Nicodemus, this is our problem too. Sometimes we don't grasp the things that are right under our noses in the Bible, Right? Why is it so easy for the doctrine, you must be born again, to be lost on us? Because like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, you can easily, easily substitute religious activity and ethics for the substance of Christianity. You can forget, I must have a new birth. I must be a new creature in Christ. It's easy to replace the substance of true religion with a nominal religion that is oh so satisfied with the outward trappings of religion, with outward behavior and outward associations. I have the right friends and so on. But this is one, one of the vital and deadly mistakes of the Pharisees. And it is also the mistake of new Pharisees today. You know, for instance, the federal vision heresy is spreading and infiltrating even in Reformed Presbyterian churches, not praise God, among ministers and elders, as far as I'm aware, but among members, right? Especially as you have, uh, you know, found in this group men who see themselves as culture warriors, and this empire seems to grow. But the thing that these men don't do is press and stress on souls that they must be born again. They are satisfied with not only outward behavior in the culture, but also outward observances of things like baptism, so long as you observe these rites of the church, you are okay. 
If you ever reject those things, though, then you are not okay. But friends, the problem is there are so many who observe the things of the church who don't have a reborn heart. And that is the fundamental problem, right? You need to know whether you have a right standing with God that doesn't come from baptism and taking the Lord's Supper and having church attendance, all good things. However, if you're not born again, these things just condemn you. They do nothing in God's eyes but add heaping coals to your head, right? And so, all that to be said, especially as pedo communion is spreading in, in Presbyterian circles thanks to Federal Vision, right? We have to be on guard and never think that we are going to give, as Doug Wilson does, his 18-month-old, the supper, which is nothing more than heaping condemnation on that poor child's head if they don't turn in faith. And we must evangelize our children first. And we must have them come to the Lord by faith. Or else none of their religious activity, like with the Pharisees, will testify of anything but whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. So we must evangelize them. Nor, and this is different from the federal vision, but we can also fall into another error which is presumption, presuming our covenant children are regenerate. This is a gross error many Presbyterians have fallen into in the last probably two centuries. You know, they even say, baptize your children because you can presume that they are regenerate. No, we don't baptize them for that reason. We baptize them because of God's covenant that says he is God to us and our children. It's not because we presume that they are regenerated. That would be to fall into the folly of nominalism once again. We must stress their need to be born again. Right? We are to say, my son, my daughter, you must have a living faith in the Savior. You are to trust in him only. You are to call on the name of the Lord because, my son, my daughter, all that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no distinction. Right? You must take what is signified by the waters of baptism and have the substance of it, that new birth and a washing of regeneration. And so with that theology before us, let us consider our second and last heading, which is the means of the new birth. And so as I mentioned, the work of regeneration is all of the Holy Spirit, and I should just say, as Jesus has mentioned, verse 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth, And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. No man can control the Holy Spirit. No man can direct the Spirit's work. You remember this is the the blasphemy of Simon the sorcerer, right? Who tried to uh, purchase the Holy Spirit and was told to repent of his wickedness in Acts 8. No, the Holy Spirit, he is God. He is completely sovereign. He blows where he will. And at that, then, you might fall into the error of saying, well, what can we do as parents, then, if he will blow where he will, right? Why should I evangelize him? Well, this is sort of the hyper-Calvinist error as well. But the first thing you are to remember is that the Holy Spirit is God, right? And though he is truly sovereign, he is neither capricious nor arbitrary, right? Right? 
The Lord our God is not capricious. He is not arbitrary like the gods of the pagans. He has promised to work through means by which he brings covenant children and others to faith. Right? And so instead of the error of presumption, where our, uh, our, our faith is, is in the hope of promise. Right? So we put away presumption. Instead, we embrace promise. And there is a fine line between these two perspectives. But there is a vital, vital one. You know, the presumptuous parent presumes, my child is good with the Lord. Whereas a parent who rests on the promises of God is hopeful that the Lord will do a work and regenerate their child. A hope found in promises such as Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And when the child is baptized, as this child will be, the parent pleads with God for Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And it's that promise, right, that we plead when the water is poured in baptism, and we plead, will you also, O God, not just pour water on my child, but pour your spirit upon my child as your promise to be a God to me and my children, as in Acts 2.39, when it is reiterated, right, that uh, God, the promise is unto you and to your children, right? Reiterated in the New Testament. And it's that promise we look to in Christian baptism of our infant children. And the difference then between the presumptuous parent and the promise-filled parent is that the promise-filled parent then is eager to use the means that the Lord promises to use. That through these means, the Lord, their faith is that the Lord may draw their child to faith. And so using these means, in faith, they evangelize their own children. And so I want to leave with you seven brief ways in which you might evangelize your children. And this is not in any way exhaustive. And it's not just for parents of covenant children. You know, as a covenant people, we have taken vows, right, to help raise, help the parents raise the children here in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so these are also for all of us here who are members of the congregation, childless or not. First, how does evangelizing begin? And you might take a step too far, right? And immediately say, well, I need to tell my infant all about the Lord Jesus. And you must. But it begins someplace else. It begins with faith in the word you have heard, right? Uh, Which then leads to this aching and gnawing sense of a need for what is in the word of God. And it gives you a sense then, as we think on the, uh, on the sovereignty of the Holy Ghost and the sovereignty of God, it produces in us a sense of dependence on the Lord. That I myself cannot convert their heart. Their heart is beyond my grasp. And I must then have a sense of dependence on the Lord that drives me to my knees in prayer, right? To the secret place as Job did, right? Who can I go to for the sake of my child? I can only go to the Holy Ghost, right? Who not only is the one who blows where he wills, but is also my help in prayer, isn't he? If Rachel pleaded for a first birth in her womb, give me children or I die, you ought to have the same desperation for your child's second birth, if not greater. Give him or her a new birth or I die, right? 
You have to have this kind of sense of desperation if you truly love them, right? More than they go to the best school or have the best job, you would have the sense of utter dependence on the Lord. Give my child a new birth or I die. Think of how Paul prayed for the covenant people who walked away from Christ. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Right? And you said, I will almost that, I wish almost that I could be lost so that they could be saved. Right? This is the heart of his kinsmen by the flesh, the covenant people. How much more we ought to plead for our children. As Paul did, plead the promises of the covenant of grace in prayer, right? Thou hast said that the promises to us and our children, right? Argue with God, right, in these ways. Bring his word to bear in prayer. Thou hast said that thou wouldst be God to us and our children too. O Lord, send thy Holy Spirit to blow on my child, that they may love the Lord their God and they may cleave to him forever. If they are sinners from conception then, why not pray such things from conception as well, right? It's never too early to pray for your child, right? Even before they know your voice and you can directly evangelize them, you pray to the Lord of hosts, blow on my child, even from the womb, may they know the Lord Jesus as John the Baptist. Second, you evangelize them by teaching them about their sin, that they are sinners in need of God's grace, just like you and just like me. You teach them Psalm 51, verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Right? You teach them, my son, my daughter, we are all born sinners and we are not born good in God's sight. And I will say it again, and I will probably say it once again, that there is a great temptation, brethren, in raising Christian children their temptation is unique in a way. It is the temptation of the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. When you think on Pharisees in the New Testament parents, think covenant child, Right? These were children of the covenant and how the devil, right? He gets his hooks into our heart. He, he has had 6,000 years to observe you and me and our race. And he knows precisely how to get at every kind of person. And for the covenant child, the temptation is going to be, oh, I am not a, 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 an adulterer like this person. I am not one who breaks the Sabbath day like this person. I'm not one who um, is confused about what sex the Lord has made me, and so on and so forth. And he's going to do this, right, for your children, if you are unaware of his devices, but the apostle says we are not unaware of his devices, just by the virtue of our children knowing Christian ethics and morality, they are going to face a kind of temptation the devil loves to use on them, which is, I am not as bad as others in this world. I am not confused by transgenderism. I am not woke. I tithe. I go to church. I am married to someone of the opposite sex. And what a low bar all of that is. And yet, you see this with the culture warriors, aren't you? Seeing that, right? You see so-called conservatives that are happy, right, that they are um, 
not confused over the fact that men are made male and female. And yet they will support things like gay rights. And yet they will support things like uh, injustice in many other matters. Or they will say things like divorce is not a big deal. The bar is very low for righteousness in our society, friends. And the temptation is, even in the Christian church, is to be satisfied. But what the Pharisee said is he was no extortioner, he was no adulterer, and he was not unjust, that he would fast, he would make a, a tithe of mint and cumin. But what is the one thing he never said? God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. He never saw himself a sinner. And the temptation is going to be that our children are going to see everybody else as sinners and not us and not themselves. And you have to be wise to this, parents. Third, you need, uh, you need to know that in discipline, you have a powerful means to evangelize, right? You need a couple evangelism with discipline. This is a crucial element of discipline often neglected even by Christians. You know, even the Christian who does not spare the rod can neglect to show our children their sin. Uh, This is a clarifying point even as we go into discipline. I'll talk about discipline in another sermon. But you need to ask yourself, what commandment has my child broken that I am disciplining them for, right? We have to let them know. We ourselves need to know so that we don't discipline our children out of turn for no cause, so when they lie, right, we don't just tell them that is misbehaving. That is a sin against a holy God who has said, right, in Jesus Christ, has said this, that the devil was a liar from the beginning. And so you think on these things and you say, these are evils, my child. This is not just a bad thing. This is evil. And when they hit one another, right, we tell them that is a sin. That's not just merely being rude. And so their sin then is an opportunity to evangelize them and lead them to Christ and show them why they need the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that even the smallest sin, even the smallest white lie is enough to condemn a man. And that leads to number four. You are to teach them of the grace of God that forgives in Christ. Right? We remember and we remind them of the promise of the cross of Christ for sinners. In our text, right, we praise God for this, that our Lord Jesus did not end his teaching on salvation by saying simply, you must be born again, right? Uh, That would lead us to a kind of uh, fatalistic, pagan philosophy, right? No, what does he do? He gives us instruction on the instrumental cause by which men are saved. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you must be born again, my child, here is the promise. Look on the Savior. Believe on him. Look on him and be saved, all ye ends of the earth and you will know that you are born again. Look unto Jesus for your salvation, and you will know you have been born again. And so let me say this. Perhaps in the preaching of the word, you have been stirred up, whether you are a child or an adult, and you are desirous of this new birth that alone will not give you condemnation, but you have felt it is beyond you. Christ gives you the prescription, all of you, whether you are a 100 years old, 
or you are a hundred days old. The prescription is look on him and be saved. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is all it takes to repent of your sin. And by God's help, turn to the Savior, trusting in him alone for salvation. And that is evidence you have the new birth. And you will have affections for righteousness. You will adore the Savior and you will love God of a truth. Parents, though, this is the instruction that must ever be before your children. My son, my daughter, cleave unto the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Put all your hopes for salvation in him. Not your goodness. Fifth, the primary means the Lord uses to draw all men to himself is the word of God. So make sure that your children are constantly under the word and the preaching of it. Uh, I will speak more on this tonight in preaching as the primary means of grace. But just remember that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Romans 10.13. But how is it that they call in the name of the Lord so that they would be saved? It is when preachers are sent. And so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So bring your children under the preaching of the word. So many of you are here, and what a blessing that is. The Holy Spirit promises, right? This is one of those promises that we see in Romans 10, that this is the place He will blow on them to give faith as they hear the voice of God, not the voice of a man, but as the man preaches the Word of God, they are hearing the Holy Ghost speak. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.25 that through preaching and the worship of God and thus are the secrets of his heart, the unbeliever that is, made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God. This is what happens when they are under preaching. We pray for this, that they will be converted. And so, you know, I've addressed your parents a lot, children. But children, you need to take Christ yourself. You need to take the Lord Jesus for yourself today. You must be born again. There is no option for you. You must be reborn. And you can have Christ so simply, right? Even the youngest child can have Christ by trusting in him from the days of their youth. Trust in him. And parents, not only in the preaching of the word in the assembly, but in your own home, Right, Deuteronomy 6 and 11, review it today. The word of God is meant to be taught by you morning and night, uh, when you're up and you're down, when you're walking. Right, You need to have family religion. Uh, we'll cover family worship in the Christian family series another day. But you must use the word of God, and especially evangel- evangelistic portions of the word. All of it is, but there's some that are pointedly so, and don't neglect those in family worship. They must know these things. And in our baptismal vows, we're going to see that this family will take a vow to give their child a God-centered education so that the scriptures are always before the children. It is the teaching of the word that the Lord often blesses. Sixth, parents, this is for you especially, you are to be a model of Christly faith and practice. When you go tonight and you look at Deuteronomy 11.22, you will hear that the Lord will use your own example in their life, saying, If ye, parents, shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to cleave unto Him, then He blesses our children. 
You need to model Christian graces in your own life, in your own home. You are to diligently keep the commandments of the Lord and love the Lord yourself. If you want your children to cleave unto him, what are you doing in not cleaving to him yourself? You need to resolve not to be a hypocrite. And when you see sin publicly, and you will sin publicly before their eyes, what are you supposed to do? Are you to sort of say, never mind that? No, you are to say, before God, I repent of my sin. And my child needs to see it because I have made a public spectacle of myself before him or her. Uh, and I need to repent. And they need to see that no one, especially my, their parents, are beyond the need of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord often rewards those who honor him in humility with godly seed who follow that same practice. Seventh, inquire with your children as to the state of their soul. You need to not just assume the state of their soul, don't be presumptuous, but ask them directly where they stand with the Lord Jesus, even as Jesus asked Peter, lovest thou me? Right? Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart, but he asks him. And we don't know what is in the heart of all men, especially our children. And so we are to ask them, do you, my child, love the Lord thy God? Do you hate and forsake your sin? Do you trust in Jesus only for salvation? It is shocking how few parents, Christian parents, have asked these questions. Now, I want you to also remember and recognize as you ask them these things that many Christian children are regenerated early, right? Maybe even in the womb like John the Baptist. So with covenant children, what you must not do is you must, well, you, what you must do is be careful to not press them. Okay, when is the hour? When is the exact moment that you first called upon the name of the Lord? What is the day and the hour in which you first began to believe? Some will tell you with sincerity, my father, my mother, I have always believed on the Lord Jesus. I've always seemed to have known that I am a sinner, right? And I have tr trusted in the Savior. And you must be happy with that, right? Even infants, we'll talk about this another time, can have the seed of faith, right? A faith that is not yet mature. However, what you and I must do as parents is observe them to see if it is the seed of faith and it is maturing over time. Now, the thing about wheat and tares is they are hard to distinguish, especially early on. And some children, when you ask, right, are just going to want to please you and say what you want to hear. And so what you need to do is you need to see where they stand with the Lord at various checkpoints in their life. Right? Even in our society, uh, natural things, uh, natural law, so to speak, sort of teaches us that we have signposts towards maturity, right? Uh, there's the day they begin their schooling. There's the day when they graduate into middle school or high school. Then comes the day they begin to drive, the day be they begin to work, and so on. And these might be good natural markers for you as to inquire as to the state of their faith and to observe them diligently in these things. And you can also use the Lord's Supper with them as well. See, the pedo-communion danger uses communion wrongly, but we use it rightly, right? So that when the, the table is administered and those communicants come to the table, those who are over there, the children primarily, but also other unbelievers, uh, we plead with them, the minister does, come to the Lord's side. This is a preview of the separation of sheep and goats. You need to be where the Lord is. You need to ask yourself, child, what think ye of Christ? 
What is it that prohibits you from confessing him as those at the table? Where do you want to be eternally speaking? Do you want to be in glory at the wedding supper of the Lamb? Or do you want to be in the lake of fire? Inquire diligently with them. It is sad how few parents do. Well, with time gone, right? These seven principles, you must never forget salvation is ultimately of the Lord, right? You can do everything right and your child might still walk away from the Lord. I say this because while the Lord uses the means I've mentioned, at the end of the day, he is sovereign and truly there are some among us who will be Esau's and there will be others who will be Jacob's. And if a child of ours does not come to the Lord, right? Remember the spirit bloweth where he will. And even if they walk away from the faith, you need to entrust that child's soul to Christ's care. And you can retain hope for their salvation still. And you are to not stop praying for them, even in adulthood. Even if they don't come to the Lord when you pass away, don't go to your deathbed without hope if they are still living. You would be surprised how many come to faith after the death of faithful parents. In any case, though, our hope is set on the Lord and what he will do with our children and whatever he does with them is good. And we must entrust our children to him ultimately. And you and I may be used as an instrument of their salvation, but we can never be the effectual call of it, the cause of it because we cannot circumcise their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. And we are glad to rest in the truth that their heart is in the king's hands. But never grow weary of evangelizing them by saying you must be born again. Remind them of the danger of the first birth and the blessed hope of a second found in verses 16 and 18. Oh, may they never forget these words. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. May the Lord help us evangelize our children, that the hearts of all our children would be turned to him for his praise and his glory. Amen. Let us arise for prayer now. O Lord, our God, our prayer is blow, O God, blow on your people. You ask, can these dead bones live? And you know, Lord, they can if you would blow upon them. Blow the mighty breath of life upon all children here. Blow the mighty breath of life on all who have attended to the preached word. Blow on them, Father, that their heart would be turned to you that they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And may they follow after Christ and into eternity. We pray this for our covenant children, and we pray this for those who are afar off and are strangers in our midst today. May they all be found among the people of God with true saving faith. We pray that you would bless the preaching of the word now to these ends. In Jesus' name, amen.